Hello, my lovelies. You are now listening to The Vow, Voice of Women. The intention of this podcast is to empower women through sharing of real life stories. We have a fab lineup of inspiring, kick-ass, real, dedicated women. We're going to get down and dirty. What has made these women successful? What makes them tick? How do they handle conflict? And what might they eat in a day? So here we go. Cortons. Welcome, Dinara. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. And, and thank you for being here. Now, you are an assistant professor and Canadian research chair in the Department of Psychology at the University of Calgary. Uh, you are an adjunct assistant professor in the Faculty of Social Work and is jointly appointed to the Department of Psychiatry. Dinara also serves as the scientific co-director of PrevNet, Canada's National Healthy Relationships Hub. So we're just going to just jump right in because I feel like we have so much ground to cover today and it's important ground. So your research focuses on evaluating healthy relationships, mental health promotion activities in school and community settings and developing and evaluating implementation support tools for school-based mental health, healthy relationship service delivery, and prevention of adolescent dating violence, which is just a whole other world. So let's chat about these three. Mm -hmm. How do you elevate healthy relationships? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think there's a number of ways that we do it, um, but I think what's important to talk about is a lot of people focus on individual skills and capacities for youth. So how to negotiate consent, how to be healthy in a relationship, how to be a good partner, and all of that's really critical. And we think about that in terms of how we might build reading and writing skills. So these are all skills that youth have to build, just like we teach reading and writing. Um, And so in terms of our approach, we approach it very much the same way in terms of skills-based opportunities for learning, not assuming that kids just know how to do it. We need to give them structured opportunities to learn those skills. So I think that's where a lot of people approach it from, and that's really important. I think what we're learning from the work we're doing and other people are doing um, is how all the other contexts that impact youth well-being, so their school, their neighborhood, um, where they live, all of those things are so critical for healthy relationships too. And so in addition to the skills building, which is really important, We also, I think in our work more and more, are focused on policy and what that means for individual youth and their ability to navigate to healthy relationships and have the resources they need, um, as well as funding for programs and services. So when we think about building healthy relationships, we like to think, we say, in context. So not just what does this individual youth need, but do they have access to a supportive adult in their life? Do they have access to the mental health and other resources they might need? Are they experiencing discrimination and how is that impacting their well-being? So all of those things are really a part of what we try to do when we say promote healthy relationships is to address all of those different levels. I have so many things kind of swirling through my head right now because teens today, I believe and I assume, are facing so much scrutiny, adversity, hardship um, within their home life as well. And... You know, I I always think like I had a very healthy upbringing where I had two parents that really taught me, you know, what a healthy relationship was. But for our teens and young young adults, you know, coming 
coming into that age where they are starting to build relationships like it must just be very daunting today and where yeah where are these teens going are they where are they getting help if they're not getting it from their parents you know are there resources out there to help these teens and it sounds like these are some of the resources that you guys are building at the university to help these teenagers right yeah so i think we very much start always from a place of people are doing the best they can with the resources they have whether that's the youth we're working with their families the communities that they're in Um, and so a lot of what we're dealing with is often a resource issue so Mm -hmm. making sure to address that in whatever work that we're doing but yes having places where youth can go where they feel safe where they can trust um, the adults that are there is really critical and you know they're at least in terms of resources in school when we think about some of the cuts that have been happening there's less and less of that but it's really really important that those resources are there and so that is something that we do we work to both put resources within schools to make sure those resources are working well to support community partners um, who are trying to put resources in for youth but making sure every youth you know has somewhere they know they can go has an adult that they can rely on is super critical um, and unfortunately is not something that every youth has Um, and you were mentioning sort of some of the challenges today and I think not surprising we're on a podcast is social media um, and that involves like a whole new layer Mm -hmm of challenges and navigating all of that, whether it be getting consent for digital things, sexting, how to navigate relationships in both an online and in-person space. So there are, I think, additional pressures um, beyond what maybe I would have gone through 20 years ago navigating some of this in terms of like the social media landscape and what that means for building healthy relationships too. I don't know if you can speak to this, Dinara. Uh, I, you know, oftentimes even with some of my close friends and and colleagues within the industry that have kids that are in school, young kids, preteen. We even talk about things like, I wish there was a course mm-hmm. that spoke about finance, like really like what is a stock? What is a bond? How to invest? How to put you know 5% of your income or 10% of it away for a rainy day? Now that we're talking, I'm, and I have two young girls, they're mm-hmm. almost five and almost mm-hmm. eight. And so we're not in the sexting and you know, we're not in the social media yet, but are there, um, I guess, courses that are being implemented or do you believe should be implemented in kids' programs today in schools for what you're talking about, for how to manage social media? What if someone, you know, you're nine years old and someone sex texts you or whatever it's called? Like, I have to think these are mounting pressures that kids are facing today. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, you know, teachers do so much already. And so it is important that some of this is in curriculum, um, that that's not the only space where it can be accessed. But yes, absolutely. Putting um, information around dating violence and bullying and healthy use of social media into curriculum is really, really important. It's a key part of learning and being like a 21st century citizen. So seeing that in curriculum is important that teachers have those tools and then also I think that youth know where to go to get information on that and it is out there I mean obviously they're a lot savvier than I am but going to trusted resources to figure out you know what is okay what's not okay and the bottom line we always say like do you feel safe I mean if you don't feel safe it's time to seek help you should feel safe in your relationships every relationship goes through ups and downs but you should feel safe so But in terms of actual resources, yes, having it as part of curriculum is really important. Mm -hmm. 
Where does the prevention of adolescent dating violence begin? Mm-hmm. Um, so from where we work, we work a lot with schools. And so for us, it starts like grade one, kindergarten, in terms of something we call social emotional learning skills. So those are things like being able to manage and recognize your emotions, knowing how to be um, in a relationship where you're respectful of other people, things like that. So that can start really young. Um, And those are sort of the building blocks for healthy relationships in all domains, whether that be with a romantic partner or a friend or a parent. Um, But in terms of dating violence specific information, that really needs to start by grade six because we know youth are having dating experiences and unfortunately as soon as dating starts so too does dating violence so youth need to know really early what to look for what's not okay in a relationship um, when they should seek help you know what they might be able to expect but what is maybe um, outside of the normal boundaries of what we would think of as a healthy relationship Um, so it's really critical that starts by grade six wow grade six so that's like 11 years old. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> wow. Yes. It's, uh, I, to your point, I mean, things have changed in the last 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, 30 years. So it's just, uh, yeah, wow, crazy. What can like parents do to protect their kids or be aware of maybe what's going on? Because, you know, kids get to a certain age and they start to speak less to their parents. They start to tell their parents less. They're more secretive. They spend more time with their friends. So as a parent, I can only imagine how daunting it is to have kids that are starting to date and what kind of conversations can you have? Yeah. And I feel like the advice we give is important. It's probably unsatisfactory in some ways. There's not, you know, a five-step process. I think what you're doing already and like you're talking about with your girls, like building this space where they feel they can come to you with things you know there's just they're not going to come to you with everything so then it's about you know do they have other adults in their lives that you feel good about who they'll go to but certainly in terms of youth coming to you as their parent is it a space where they feel they can come without judgment and share what's going on um you know one of my colleagues wendy craig always talks about the best place being in the car when you're driving because you know these are tricky and awkward conversations and so having a space where you can kind of just ask and maybe throwing out something you've seen in the media like oh you know I saw this what do you think about that or you know I heard on this podcast that you know sexting is pretty common among kids your age what do you think about that like are your friends doing that so making it not so personal but demonstrating that you're open to having these conversations Mm -hmm. you're going to hear what they say without judgment you know you want them to come to you when they're um facing something that's difficult and especially with dating if you've communicated that you know dating's not okay um, or before a certain age and then they end up being in a relationship they might really feel like well they can't come to you because you've already Mm -hmm. said that's not okay so communicating that you know they can at any time come to you with things even if it's maybe not you know what you would have done or hoped for but that you are always there for them and you've got their back and that really starts much earlier obviously um with just showing kids that you're there to listen to them and help them work through their problems i'm glad that you shared that because i we even say to our our oldest daughter i mean she's only seven but we say ophelia you will be in trouble to us you, you will be, you will get in trouble with us if you lie to us mm. but if you tell us the truth we will never be angry with you. Right. Because we want to have those lines of communication open, even if you've done something wrong, even if it's horrible, as long as you're honest with us, I I won't punish you. But if Mm -hmm. you lie, 
you know, that's when I'll punish you. And so it's actually really opened up the ability for her to be honest with us, even if she knows she did something wrong, because she right. knows she's not going to be punished. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think kids, I mean, they're so afraid of that, you know, and I yeah. think especially if you, yeah, they feel like, oh, my mom wouldn't like this or my yes. dad wouldn't like this, but if they know, like, but I've come to them before, and this really builds on things, right? Yes. So something small when they're six or seven, but they've learned that, like, oh, when I come to them, even if I know they probably wouldn't be thrilled mm-hmm. about it, they heard me and we worked it out. Mm-hmm. They build on that um, for when they're teenagers and maybe have slightly bigger things they need to come and talk to you about. Yeah, because even if, you know, I would just, I, I'm thinking to when they're older, even if they did something that I felt was morally wrong or against our belief system, I would still rather them be able to feel like they can tell us and be open with us than not, you know, not know at all. I think that that would be, as a parent, that's horrible that you find out your kids are doing things that could put them in danger mm-hmm. because they didn't feel comfortable telling you. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad that you, that you mentioned that. What are some of the statistics in adolescent dating violence and have has it decreased or increased over the years? Sure. Um, so I think this is probably, I mean, I live in this world, so it's never surprising to me, but when I go out and talk to parents and teachers and other people in the public, like it's so, con- one in three people, teens in Canada will experience dating violence. Um, and we do know, not for everyone, but we do know there are you know pretty strong associations with experiencing dating violence and then later in life experiencing problems with mental health or substance use. And particularly since this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, being in another relationship where there's violence. Um, so it is pretty common. So we think about other things that we worry about for kids. So like one in five kids have tried smoking. One in four have had experience with high-risk drinking. So one in three experienced dating violence in some way. So it is a serious problem. Um, but I think it's still a problem that not that many people know about. Um, so in terms of up or down, I can't tell you. There's no, We don't have national data on an ongoing basis. So my colleague and I just published the first paper with national data. That's where we get that one in three number from. Um, but we don't actually have national data, so we don't know what's happening. Um, if we look at the states, they've been collecting national data for the past 20 or so years. There's really been no change. So for physical dating violence, so being physically hurt on purpose by a partner, um, it's about one in 10. And then if you include things like psychological aggression, that's where it goes up to that one in three. So we don't know, but based on what you know from the states, I wouldn't anticipate that it's really changed over the past few decades. And that's where we really need to be investing in prevention. Well, and I guess the other thing that came to mind for me was back in the day, like our grandparents, they just didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, um, I, I know people's grandparents that went through domestic violence were very unhappy in marriages and died in that marriage Mm -hmm. you know because not because of necessarily domestic violence but they took it to their grave yes because people didn't divorce i mean you you know you grew up in a farming community you didn't divorce your spouse you know you didn't talk about domestic violence and what was done and so i think today we have so many more platforms and so many more resources and maybe there is a feeling of being heard and it's a safe place to discuss it too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. I don't, you know, I don't think this is a new phenomena. It's just you know, researchers are slow. Like the first studies on dating violence came out in the late 80s. Um, and since then, there's been a lot more work, but it's still something we don't know that much about because the research is still pretty, mm-hmm. pretty new. 
So studies suggest that if a teenager experiences one abusive relationship, they will likely experience another. So let's talk about the patterns that develop in this situation and why it's more likely to occur again. Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, again, it's something that I think we haven't focused on very much. So we have ideas in our research that we're trying to understand. Um, so one, we know that in adolescence, adolescents are really actively developing a sense of identity or who they are. Um, and that's who they are in their family and who they are in terms of their job, but it's also who they are in dating relationships. And so if your first romantic experience is one where you are belittled, treated poorly, up to physically or sexually abused, that might come to form part of what you think sort of romantic relationships are like. Um, so it might be part of sort of your identity in romantic relationships and then learning like actually, no, you know, that's not um, a healthy part of a romantic relationship. And this again is where that education piece is so important just to say like, these are things that actually aren't okay for a partner to do. Um, and it's okay for you to say no and it's okay for you um, to want something different that's not what we would consider healthy um, so we think maybe it has something to do with that um, resources as well like we have to consider for some youth what's available to them and why they might be in romantic relationships they might need access to things like housing or food um, and so being partnered with certain people might be part of that and that might put them at greater risk for future violence so the short answer is we don't really know but we do know um, of all the things I mentioned, that is definitely the strongest link is that people who experience dating violence often go on to experience future violence. Again, it's not everyone. I know when I talk about this, parents be like, oh my goodness, like my teens experience this. Are they doomed? No, like always there can be a change in trajectory, um, but certainly the risk is higher. And so if you um, or someone you know has experienced dating violence, really listening to them and supporting them to get um, the help they're looking for is very important. Let's talk about consent. Uh, because as, as an adult and dating, mm -hmm. I, I'm very well of what consent is. And I think as an adult, many times we're more comfortable with talking about it. But the reality is kids are having sex at a younger age and they are dating at a younger age. The girls are getting their periods at a younger age, it seems. And so what kind of conversation or how do you introduce that to a, to really a child? I'll say a teenager in my eyes, they're mm -hmm. still a child, you know, when you're talking about consent, because I even think as a parent, the, the thought of, you know, having to have those discussions with my girls is, is daunting and horrible and but it's sometime it's going to happen yeah and so if you have two kids that are 13 14 how do you how do you talk to them about consent and what that means and what's healthy totally um so the first thing I'll say is they're already talking about it so you're not introducing something new I think <laughs> sometimes there's this fear of like oh my gosh if I say it maybe they'll think about it they're already thinking about it they're already talking about it with their friends so you're not introducing an idea to them um I mean again it starts as early as you can. So this is even to like naming body parts properly when they're really little um, and not introducing shame around certain body parts um, is really important. Talking openly about just relationships generally and boundaries so you don't have to hug that person if you don't want to is important. So it's building on a foundation of consent and comfort with body. But in terms of actual teenagers, 
Um, it's tricky, but again, throwing out things that you've heard can be a good way to start. Talking about things that you think or what it was like for you growing up and asking them, like, what's it like now? Is that kind of what it's like for you? What are you hearing? So it's really opening up those lines of communication. And, you know, you're a human. You have thoughts probably on what you would like to do and not like to do. So I think you're going to express that to them, but couching that and like, this is how I think about it how do you think about it? Like, why might we be different? Or, you know, what are some of the things you might need to look out for? Or here's, you know, why I think the way that I do think, but giving them space to contribute to that conversation. I think in the past, it's been very much a one-way conversation of like, this is what you're going to do. This is when you're going to do it. And I don't want to know otherwise. Um, and it's fine that you have your own beliefs and opinions, but give them space to have theirs as well. And to talk about what they're seeing and thinking and hearing um, and that you have space to listen to that and, and actually engage in conversation. Um, and I think it is awkward. I don't think there's any oh way gosh, to make it yes. not so awkward. I'm, I'm awkward yes. just sitting here thinking yes. about having to have a conversation so, like that with my daughters. It's, you know, opening the lines of communication, making sure they have access to good information. So saying, you know, I know you probably don't want to talk to me about all of this. So I want you to know I'm here, but like here's some good information for you to look at. It's advocating that at your kid's school, they have good sexual health education that's going out that's not abstinence-based that we know works to help kids. So I think there's lots of ways as a parent. One of those ways for sure is engaging in conversation yes. with your child, but there are lots of ways that you can support them to have healthy sexual development and a healthy sexual identity. Love that you said I chuckled at the beginning when you said they're already talking yeah. about it. Like, don't be naive, Tanya. Like, when your kids are 10 or 11 or 12 or 13, like, it is so true, right? I mean, they're kids yeah. and preteens and they're hormonal. And of course, they're talking about it with their girlfriends. Yeah. So exactly. I shouldn't be so naive to think that, you know, I have to wait till they're 18 to have the conversation. Yeah. No, it's hard. And I think, I mean, we do the actual age when kids start having sex hasn't changed that much. I think. We think maybe it has, but they're still like, they're very thoughtful about it. It is really important to them. So taking it, like it's a big part of their life and just mm -hmm. trying to engage in that piece of their life. Certainly they're exposed to a lot more in terms of seeing things online, the pornography that's just out there. And so again, that's where engaging in critical conversation about like, what are you seeing or what are your friends seeing? And it's hard, but it's not so much about telling them like, this is right or wrong, but trying to engage build those critical skills so when they do encounter these things because they will that they um, know how to think about it and approach it and to really question what they're seeing and think about what they want to do and all of those like critical thinking yes. skills are actually probably the most important because you can't be there with them in the moment when they're seeing something or experiencing something um, it's more about helping them having had those thoughts and thinking about what would I do in this situation because I won't be there with you to help you that's right and maybe taking the shame out of it because totally. I think shame kids that are shamed yes. or adults that are shamed yeah. it's a very yeah it's a horrible place to be and it makes you kind of want to clam up and not talk about it yeah and so making sure that your kids don't feel shamed if it does happen you know, that they can come and talk yeah. to you, I would think would be really important. Yeah, shame, I mean, is so integral to how we've decided we're gonna educate about sexual health and it's so damaging. Sexuality, even if it makes us uncomfortable, is a normal part of human experience and diversity. So taking that stance and sort of like, okay, this is something that you will experience, so let's 
make space to talk about it, both with me and with other people, because there's probably things you don't want to talk to me about as your parent, and that's okay, is so important. And not, I think, not having youth feel shame about what are just really normal feelings Mm -hmm. and an expected part of development. It's as expected and normal as the fact that they're going to have a growth spurt. And so not, you know, we don't make them feel bad because they're getting taller. We don't want to make them feel bad because they are going to have, you know, for many youth, not all youth, some youth are asexual, but are going to have feelings towards other genders and partners and interests and, you know, building space to talk about that and just trying to see it as a normal, if, you know, awkward part of growth and development, I think is so important. And then especially if something does happen where it's an experience where they did not give consent and something happened, having it where it is a shame-free, non-judgmental environment where they can come and talk to you about that as well and not feeling that shame of like, well, they you know told me not to be this person I was and then this thing happened and now I don't want to come because they're going to be mad at me. Like So again, like you were saying before, just being so clear that like I'm here mm-hmm. you know, and, and I want you to know what consent is. I want you to think about what your own boundaries are and if that's violated, I want you to know you can come and talk to me and you're not, I'm not going to judge you is so, so critical. So I can invite you over and you can say exactly <laughs> what you just said to my daughter in like five years because sure. that was perfect. Okay. <laughs> sure. New, a new service. I'll just go around. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I was thinking of kind of the analogy. We have some friends out of BC and they're from Germany and in Germany, like drinking is not a big thing, even at a young age. They have mm-hmm. wine, they, you know, they, yeah. their kids at a young age enjoy wine. And so they moved here, they raised their two boys and, and drinking socially, drinking a glass of wine with a meal from a very young age, probably 11, 12, 13, was just not a big deal. And so when it came to legal drinking age and, and going outside the house, it just wasn't this big deal for their boys where everyone, you know, all the other teens were like getting drunk and it was this big deal. And their boys were like, I don't see what the big deal about it is. Right. And they introduced it very small, very socially, very casually, but the discussion was there. It was not, they didn't make it this, like you turn 18, you go out, you get drunk, Yeah, you know? And so I think to your point, having those conversations at a young age and maybe it's not you know when they're seven eight nine like you said it's it's talking about body parts and being comfortable and saying it's okay if you don't want to hug that person we even talk to our daughters about you know strangers and what that means if someone Mm -hmm. tries to come up and talk to you and what you do and don't ever you know be enticed by candy or stuffed animals or bikes or you know and it's just having those conversations with your kids it doesn't have to be scary it's yeah. just a conversation. Yeah. And it's yeah. okay if it's scary. Yeah. I mean, it is. Yeah. You know, well, it's where we're raised in a culture where we've been told, like, all of this is bad and it's shameful. Yeah. So you are also fighting against that That's as a parent. But, yeah, teaching your children early that, like, their body is their body. Mm-hmm. Only they get to decide what they're comfortable with is really critical to all of this as you start thinking about more in-depth conversations as they get into their teenage years. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. What is something you found surprising in your studies? Um, I don't know if surprising. So in some of the recent work we've been doing, we've really been focusing a lot on not just who, well, who experiences dating violence in terms of numbers, but who in terms of groups of youth. Um, And I think not surprisingly, unfortunately, it's youth who are experiencing marginalization and other aspects of their life. So youth who are living in poverty, youth um, who are black or youth of color, youth um, who have disabilities. So 
That's not surprising. I think it is not aligned at all, though, with how we do prevention. We do prevention very much in this one-size-fits-all way. We talk about, and you know, this is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, it can happen to anyone, which is true, but there are certain youth who are much more at risk because of things that have nothing to do with them. Um, and so much of the, I think how we talk about youth is really what we would say, like individual deficits. So oh, there must be something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not. It's about the society they're living in and the resources that they have access to um, and other types of discrimination that then filter down into what is dating violence with an interpersonal relationship. So I don't know that we were surprised as much as it's disheartening. And it's disheartening not just that certain youth are more at risk because of where they grow up and the world that they live in, but also that really in prevention so far, we have not um, worked with those youth to figure out what they need to be safe and healthy in relationships. So I think that's something that, you know, we're really trying to work on um, in terms of thinking about that research and what it means. Um, And I should say, you know, this is something youth know. (laughs) We're adults figure this out slowly. They know that. So it's working with them to figure out what they need in terms of support. Yeah, so, yeah, I could see it's not a one-size-fits-all, right? It's totally. based on demographic, race, uh, society, like, your, you know, uh, where you've grown up even, you know, I, yeah, um, income bracket, you know, all of those things that we don't think about. Yeah, like, there's definitely, you know, relationships, I think, or, or messages that are universal about consent and mm-hmm. boundaries and treating your partner with respect and feeling safe. Um, But different youth are going to need more intensive supports for different reasons. And thinking about that not as things to do with them as an individual, but rather like thinking about it as a social community problem. Um, So for some youth, that means making sure they have access to safe food or safe housing, um, because then they won't feel like they have to be in a relationship that's unhealthy to get access to housing. So that's like, coming back to what I was talking about at the beginning, yes, there are individual skills and capacities we should build, but we also have to start thinking about these broader systems and structures and how they put certain youth in harm's way. Um, And that needs to be part of prevention too. What piece of advice could you give to teens who may be listening to this episode? Yeah. Um, So I think trust your gut is really important. If something is happening and it makes you feel unsafe or afraid, go with that. Um, I think we know youth really depend on their peers, which is great, but your friends might not think it's a big deal. Um, But if you aren't feeling safe, trust yourself um, and reach out to resources. And friends are a great resource, but also, you know, trying to find an adult who you feel you can talk to, whether that's a school counselor or a teacher, a parent, a faith leader, whoever it is in your life that you think you can talk to, you can call Kids Help Phone. That's probably the best resource in Canada. Um, to reach out and kind of get some opinions, but just trust trust yourself if you're not feeling safe. And what advice could you give to a parent who thinks they may have a child that is experience experiencing um, you know abuse from somebody that they are dating? Yeah. Um, so first, it might take a couple tries uh, because your child might be afraid to talk to you for a number of reasons. One, they might be afraid you're going to cut the relationship off take phones away like there can be lots of fear Um, or they might have been told by a partner not to talk to you so let them know from your heart that you are worried and why and it's not because they're doing something bad or wrong but like hey I've noticed this change in you this is why it makes me concerned can we talk about that 
and expect to get a no <laughs> and try again um, because a lot of these conversations take time and it, it takes you seeing that like, yep, you're really here, you really care, but couching it in concern for them and their health and safety and um, as a parent, this is what I see and this is why I'm worried. How do you feel about that? What do you think? So um, not kind of barging in there and like, I've seen this and I heard this and like, you're never talking to him again and I, you know, kind of I'm the authoritarian. Like it is a gentle process and I would say for parents as well, also reaching out for support and having those conversations. There's lots of organizations in Calgary um, and everywhere, but Calgary, since that's where we are, who work on domestic violence and who could give you some tips. I worked as a rape crisis counselor during grad school and we often had parents call in just to kind of work through and role play, like what would this conversation look like? Um, so also for yourself as the parent, you too can access resources to help you have that conversation. Hmm. Wow, it sounds like you've really had some firsthand experience from, you know, uh, the helpline to, you know, academia and now creating content. And I can only imagine you've seen some pretty sad and horrific things as well. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there that's really sad. But there's also, I mean, there's recovery and there's healing and people go on to find healthy relationships. Just like as we were saying, yes, it does, you know, put you at risk, but no one is doomed to experience unhealthy relationships the rest of their life. So um, I think seeing as well the recovery that can happen is really uplifting. Yeah, absolutely. Dinero, what keeps you up at night? Um, I think one thing I think a lot about is I work on dating violence and suicide prevention and other people work on substance use with youth and other people work on sexual health and we all kind of work in our silos, but there are common root causes to a lot of this and... They're often root causes that as a society are a lot harder to tackle. Things like poverty is a major root cause of domestic violence and dating violence. So why, you know, we're all kind of doing in like these small things, but how do we get together and actually start to tackle these much larger issues that are at the heart of why a lot of youth and adults don't experience healthy relationships? So I think that keeps me up because it just makes me think sometimes like we're all kind of working together but separately and we could be making a much bigger impact if we sort of turned our attention to these root causes and why don't we do that and there's lots of reasons that are on this podcast but yeah thinking about how people who are working in related things can pull together to kind of create um, safe caring and inclusive climates for children and youth that would solve you know a lot of the problems that we're all working on Mm -hmm. what have you vowed to yourself in life um I think as it relates to this and generally it's to really put youth at the center of everything we're doing. It's easy as an adult to be like, well, I've read a lot and I, you know, I was young ones and I know some stuff, so I'm just going to tell you what to do or I'm going to design this program and it's going to work for you. And it takes, I think, a lot of humility and I'm not, you know, it's something I keep working on to make sure that youth are the ones that are really guiding what we're doing because they're the ones who are experiencing the things we're trying to prevent. Um, and we have things to add as adults, for sure, but their voice really needs to be at the center of what we're doing. So at least in terms of our research, it's making sure we're doing research that's directly responding to what youth or community partners are telling us is needed and not just doing research because we think it's fun or cool, but like, what are the actual issues that our community is saying need attention and where can I sort of take my team and help and support that um, but always putting sort of youth voice at the Mm -hmm. center so 
I think that's important, not just in research, but also just, you know, in life and working with youth um, in other areas as well. So that's, uh, you just said something that kind of piqued my interest. So a lot of, it sounds like, well, maybe not a lot, but some of your research is taken from maybe polling youth or asking youth questions and getting the answers because they're really at the center of the crises, Mm -hmm. right? They're the ones that are experiencing and going through it. So is a part of your research then asking maybe teens that are, you know, currently in uh, abusive relationships and then even once they've recovered out of that relationship and to your point are thriving? Yeah, no, definitely talking about that and really hearing from them, like what would you have needed or what could you have Mm -hmm. used? Um, And also our community partners. So we work with a lot of frontline providers who are there every day with youth. And so we get a lot from them as well in terms of like, this is what we're seeing and this is what we're hearing. Can you support us to help evaluate this intervention or design something or fund something? So really trying to work with people who are on the ground to hear what, you know, what are you saying they need? Because ultimately, I hope that's why we're doing what we're doing um, and not losing sight of that. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Dinero, we also uh, like to spotlight a charity of choice on our podcast. And is there a charity that is near and dear to your heart? There are several. Um, (laughs) So I think in terms of working with youth in really equitable and important ways, Center for Sexuality in Calgary is doing amazing and like nationally recognized work. Um, So they do sexual health programming in schools, as we've been talking about, from a really non-judgmental, supportive stance. Um, So they offer programming, dating violence prevention programming for boys in particular, which is really important. They do some girls programming. So I think their work really exemplifies kind of what we've been talking about. And I should say they're a big partner of us as well. Um, Skipping Stone in Calgary supports trans and non-binary youth. We know from the work we've been doing, um, non-binary youth are at much, much higher risk for dating violence. And so that's another organization I think is doing really, really important work. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here, Dinara, and sharing us uh, with us about your research and what you're doing. And it's actually very exciting because you said that, you know, maybe stats haven't actually gone up for the amount of youth that are, are facing this. But when I hear you speak and everything you're doing, to me, the awareness and the research has made huge gains in say the last five years. So if we're not seeing those numbers drastically increase, but we're seeing research and awareness increase, Mm -hmm. then to me that equals hope. Yeah, I think, I hope so. Yeah, I think a lot of, especially on dating violence, I think we are still at a phase where very much we're in an awareness raising phase that this is happening to kids. It's happening whether we ask or not, so we should ask about it, about it and, and give them the tools they need um, to help keep themselves safe in relationships. Yes, well, thank you so much for being here today and sharing us, uh, sharing with us your wealth and knowledge. to our podcast rate us if there's any suggestions you can make or feedback we would love to hear from you thanks for tuning in